Hello and welcome to our podcast, Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is Our Loving Ode to Gladys Bentley. In this episode, we will be talking about the remarkable and inspiring life of Gladys Bentley, who took part in the Harlem Renaissance, which, of course, is an iconic time for Black history. And as such, we will also give a small overview of the Harlem Renaissance as well. Yeah, and let's actually go over the Harlem Renaissance in relation to what we're going to be talking about today. First of all, the Harlem Renaissance is so important to African American culture, there is no way under the sun that we aren't going to talk about it multiple times and in multiple ways in future podcasts. There are so many layers to it. Low-key, we might actually stay on the Harlem Renaissance the next few weeks, but we shall see. Anyway, as it's the first time that we're bringing it up, let's give a little overview about what exactly it is, just the basics. So, this movement took place in 1918 and lasted up until the 1930s. And what the movement was, essentially, was this quite epic intellectual, social, and artistic wave of black culture that mostly centered around Harlem, New York. But that being said, it was in other areas too, in the northeastern and midwestern part of the country, like in Chicago and Detroit. What you'll notice about the years that it ended around, the late 20s and the early 30s, it basically kind of fizzled out as a result of the Great Depression. Not to mention the really intense wave of conservative values but we'll talk about that last bit in a minute. So you might be wondering what exactly led up to this cultural boom, but believe it or not, even if you've never heard of the term Harlem Renaissance before, if you've listened to our podcast, you actually already have a pretty good understanding of what led up to the movement. So if you will recall, we have talked many times about something called sharecropping. That was one of the many things that popped up right after the Civil War ended, and it served as a way to not only keep black people as an agricultural slave force, but also it led to many black people essentially getting stuck more or less in the South. So even though many Southern black people would obviously want to leave the oppressive South after legal emancipation, they couldn't. And while sharecropping was a big contributor, it wasn't like it was the only way black people were kept from leaving. No matter what kind of jobs they could find after gaining citizenship, if any, because they were rarely hired, they would only be given very low paying jobs. And everyone knows how expensive moving is. Like even back in the 1800s, the 1900s, moving to another state could have been wicked expensive. It's not only that black people were given extremely low paying jobs, if they were given jobs at all, because after the Civil War was the first time newly emancipated black people were able to participate in the economy. So naturally, they have absolutely no family money or savings to speak of. They were well and truly trapped. And I think it's worth adding that there were levels behind why black people were being treated like this in the South after the war. The first level is the most obvious, just blatant and repressive racism and white people not wanting to give black people jobs or pay them. But also, the Southern elite white people very likely wanted to trap black people there. They wanted to keep them where they could better control them, where they were forever unable to rise up financially and socially so that the white elites could continue exploiting them however they chose to. 
Very true. And then, of course, there were the Jim Crow laws as well, once Reconstruction ended. But, you know, all these things that made the South so oppressive to the black population is what eventually led to what is known as the Great Migration or the Black Migration, which happened mostly from the mid-1910s to 1970s in response to this constant mistreatment. The Great Migration, and the name really honestly gives it away, was when a large number of black families began to move out of the South. And of course, in an effort to get away from Jim Crow laws, they were flocking to northeastern and midwestern states. One of these areas that they moved to was the now legendary Harlem, New York. During the Harlem Renaissance, like I said before, black culture really began to flourish. The art and music and literature that came from this period all was unlike anything that had happened in the United States before. By this point, so many black people had been stripped of their African heritage completely. But with this movement, certain forms of African culture were finally reclaimed, and not just in a casual way, in a way that brought so much pride in celebration in its wake. Old narratives were being challenged on a large scale. New aged thinking and liberal ideas were also very heavily ingrained in this movement as well. So one thing to understand about the Harlem Renaissance is that, and this will come as a surprise to no one, it had many critics. Not only from the intolerant white people looking in, but I would prefer to kind of lean away from the onlooking white critics and spend more time on the issues that black people had with it as that is the community that was directly affected. On one level, there were people who felt that the overall vibe of the movement was watered down to be more appealing to the cultural preferences of the pre-established European culture. In other words, while there was this impressive amount of black creators flourishing at the time, often their success was tied in some way to the whims of white enjoyment. And some of that was because of just how financially involved white investors were in the movement. So it was too wrapped up in mass appeal and white approval. People like W.E.B. Du Bois showed some skepticism concerning an overabundance of white involvement. I mean, people to this day share concerns similar to that in modern contexts. Like when we see films that are meant to depict black culture yet only have like two white directors and no directors from the black community who would be able to better convey the black experience. And that isn't just black culture. We see that anytime people outside of a culture try to depict it. Yeah, I'm looking at you, live action Mulan. But anywho... That was one critique that people held about it. And furthermore, many black creators were often marketed as exotic in order to grab the attention of a larger white audience. By branding them with labels like exotic, it again established that constant permanent strangers mentality that is forced onto black people in the United States. And that is very frustrating because while it's a very true observation, black creators during the movement surely were forced to stay appealing to white audiences. It's only because white people had and still have the majority of the wealth in the country. So, even when black people are given a chance at representation in the arts, they still are going to often fall victim to the desires of investors who are again going to overwhelmingly be white. But that's only one level of criticism that the movement faced within the black community. There was an argument that was completely on the other side, saying that the movement's accepting and celebratory nature of unique lifestyles would make it impossible for black culture to be accepted by the dominant white culture. 
A lot of those issues stemmed from certain Christian leaders, namely Adam Clayton Powell Sr., who served as a minister to the Abyssinian Baptist Church, a church that was very influential in the Harlem community and still holds much of that influence today. He and many other black community leaders felt that those who were too deviantly behaved would ruin the black image in the eyes of white people. And one of the arguments based upon religion was the one that Elisa just brought up. However, there were other conflicts regarding Christianity that we will likely discuss another time. But I think it's worth noting the issues regarding the idea of deviant behavior because that really ties into what we're going to be discussing today, which is another thing about the Harlem Renaissance that gets left out pretty often. Remember how I mentioned that the movement was filled with more liberal ideas? Well, Henry Louis Gates Jr., and you might remember us mentioning him from our Deconstruction of Reconstruction episode, he has a good quote about this exact subject. Gosh, I love him so much. But what he has stated before is that the Harlem Renaissance was, quote, surely as gay as it was black. Now, there are lots of things that go into play here, making this movement so accepting of not just queer lifestyle itself, but experimentation with sexuality and gender. One very big factor is that this cultural movement happened to also coexist with the Prohibition era. That time in the United States incited a flurry of speakeasies, and one thing that was common for speakeasies were the rebellious nature that they carried with them. It was kind of like, <laughs> we're breaking a ton of lies just by being in this secret illegal club. Why not add some more to the list? <laughs> so naturally, there were other norms that were being challenged during this time. Clubs and speakeasies actually provided opportunities for women, and in areas like Harlem, New York, for black women to take part in the performing arts in a way they never really had before, due to all the stigma and oppression that they faced both on a societal level and economically. And that is how we got iconic performers like Gladys Bentley. Gladys Bentley was a stunning vocalist and a highly skilled pianist. But what made her act unique was that she preferred to perform in drag, wearing men's suits and top hats. At the same time, however, she also still loved to express herself with very feminine makeup, bringing out her soft brows and gently set eyes with bold eyeliners. And many times, her act would also include backup dancers of men in drag. She was in no way trying to hide her biological sex from her audience. Though she did have a masculine stage name she would use sometimes, which was Bobby Minton. However, she wanted them knowing she was indeed a lady and that she was a lady who felt best in a proper suit. Not only did she bend the pre-established and socially accepted rules of gender, she also loved to flirt with women audience members openly and change the words of popular songs to make them more queer-friendly. So, because of her undeniable talent and unique performances, while she was first hired at Harry Hansberry's Clam House, who had originally been looking to hire a male pianist, she eventually became a staple headliner at many different clubs and theaters. Gladys had really always kind of known that she didn't really fit into rigid societal norms. In an interview, she was quoted as saying, It seems I was born different. As early 
early as nine years old, she would steal her brother's suits and even developed crushes on her women teachers in grade school. Now, Gladys was originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and was born into a family that she felt very ostracized from, particularly by her mother, who was an immigrant from Trinidad. Gladys said her mother had been disappointed with her from the moment she was born because she had wanted Gladys to be born a boy. And once it was clear that she was attracted to women, her parents tried to, quote, fix her by forcing her to take pills that were meant to cure her of her non-heterosexual desires. Let's not downplay how very far behind science was on any subject pertaining to human sexuality and, of course, gender expression. So she was surely exposed to what I can only imagine were very traumatic situations as a young child, and it obviously drove a wedge between her and her parents. So as soon as she was able, Gladys ran away from home at age 16 in the year 1923, and she found her safe haven in Harlem, New York. This was really a time for women in the performing arts to push those strict boundaries of gender, and partly because of something known as the pansy craze, which was this kind of infatuation people had with queer culture. Now, all of a sudden, Gladys had this perfect set of circumstances. She's talented beyond words, she is in a place where both black culture and queer culture were thriving, and to top it all off, she was in a field that was in high demand because the audience is totally wrapped up in her bold style. It's important to also shed light on something else. Remember, just a few moments ago, we established that oftentimes, black creators were marketed as exotic, and now, with the pansy craze, queer creators were getting attention as people had become increasingly more curious and intrigued by queerness. So, while Gladys Bentley and others who pushed the boundaries like her were able to find great success, it was all tied to this concept of their very existence being peculiar, which, when we reflect on it today, carries this sense that is akin to circus oddities, who were rarely treated with human decency and were only used to draw crowns. She was treated as an object to ogle in many ways instead of being praised for her impressive talents. Yes, and to expand on that, we've talked about the part of society that accepted her, but while there was room for someone like Bentley to find a form of success in that time, it was the 1920s. Like, come on, of course she faced an insane amount of criticism for her personal life. I mean, she was openly queer, so she had backlash from all directions. Some of her biggest critics were those who took the stance that we discussed earlier about how many aspects of the Harlem Renaissance were too queer-friendly. And there was definitely a very pointed dislike of black lesbian women on more than one level. That guy Adam Clayton Powell Sr. overtly denounced homosexuality, especially within women, as there were many who viewed it as a direct threat to the image of the black man in society. White people had a long history of making attempts of emasculating the black man time and time again. And so as a response to this constant ridicule, many black people felt that black women who operated outside of set gender roles further threatened the black man's place socially and economically. And let's take a moment to really dig into this idea of not bringing down the black man, which is still something that is highly debated in today's society in ways that are both good and bad. On one hand, there is a move for black women especially to uplift black men, date black men, and generally protect black men because of the amount of hate they face from all sides. 
On the other hand, black women who have been taught our whole lives to be strong and independent face backlash and sometimes ridicule when we are deemed too independent. When black women, especially those who are dating black men, step outside of rigid gender roles, they are accused of emasculating that man. This ties into lesbian couples as well, but especially those where one of the women is a butch or stud. When some people see these women, they believe that because black men are so weak and are unable to provide for their families, black women have to become men or at the very least step into those roles in order for the black family to survive. And I think I want to take a second to clarify something. With our 2020 eyes, we should know better than to lump together gender queer tendencies with sexual queerness. But in the case of the 1920s, a clear understanding of the differences between gender identity and sexual preferences was very skewed. So with the case of Bentley and how she exhibited both sexual and gender queerness, it may feel like the difference between them is getting lost in the mix. But please keep in mind that we should all do our part to remember that gender identity and sexuality are different, and they always have been, even if society had not acknowledged it yet. But to bring it back to the subject at hand, sadly, the Harlem Renaissance really began to fizzle out, like I said, as a result of the Great Depression. With the fizzling out of the movement, many reactionary norms came back into play. Gender roles were again upheld on a high pedestal, and people like Gladys Bentley, who had once been a beloved performer who traveled all around the country as a star headliner, fell on hard times. While Bentley had always been really harshly judged for her personal life, she never really had trouble in her career until the mid-1930s. To add on to the trouble that the Great Depression had caused, with the end of Prohibition in 1933, the club scene changed a lot. Activity in clubs and bars were being monitored much, much closer now, and many of the things that were intended to be shut down were specifically targeting the queer community. They used words like disorderly joints, and that was basically just code for gay. So so law enforcement really wanted to end illegal liquor and disorderly nightclubs. Because of the swift change, Bentley moved to California in 1937 to try and save her act. It turned out less than successful because now she had to deal with much more rigid club and theater restrictions. Most places didn't allow people to perform in drag. They had these strict anti-cross-dressing laws that dated all the way back to the 1800s that they hadn't gotten rid of yet. So she had to get a special permit to even performing drag at all. And when the 1950s rolled around, Gladys had to change her public image to, quote, fit the times. Because we've all heard of the Red Scare that raged on during the 1950s, but there was also something known as the Lavender Scare, which was this serious fear of the possible rise of homosexuality. People were getting fired left and right if there was even just rumors that they might be gay. And you know, Gladys had dreamed of being a performer her whole life. She ran away from home so that she could chase that dream, and she lived a life that she was deeply proud of. Her heart had always belonged to being a performer, so of course she did everything to hold on to her career and revive it the best she could. It is likely because of her desire to stay in her dream career that Gladys wrote an article that showed up in Ebony Magazine, which was a black culture magazine at the time, that was titled, I Am A Woman Again. In this article, 
she reveals that she has, upon the advice of her doctors, began taking estrogen pills that had supposedly cured her of her homosexual desires. Not only had the pills cured her, but she no longer would wear non-gender conforming outfits, only sticking to dresses and skirts. She also announced in the article that she had in fact married a man and a few pictures were printed out in the magazine next to her article of her and her husband. Even though her image change did give her a few years more of her career, and she even made an appearance on a popular night show called You Bet Your Life in 1958, she never returned to the same level of success she had known in her golden age of the Harlem Renaissance. And eventually, she passed away at the young age of 52 in 1960 from pneumonia. I actually read through the article that she wrote myself, which we will be linking in our show notes if you want to check it out. And honestly, it's really heartbreaking. This article was high key, more like an ode to queerness. The way homosexual people are treated in society and how they are shunned, yet people still exploit them for their talents and uniqueness. I'm actually going to let the words of Gladys Bentley wrap up this lecture today because I think she does a beautiful job speaking for herself. And this has been cut down to fit, so keep that in mind. Throughout the world, there are thousands of us fugitive humans who have created for ourselves a fantasy as old as civilization itself, a fantasy which enables us, if only temporarily, to turn our backs on the hard realism of life. Our number is legion, and our heartbreaks inconceivable. Some of us wear the symbols and badges of our nonconformity. Others, seeking to avoid the censure of society, hide behind respectable fronts, haunted always by the fear of exposure and ostracism. Society shuns us. The unscrupulous exploit us. Very few people understand us. If we cannot find happiness in our personal lives, we sometimes are able to attain it in the professional world. That is my story. These people came to acclaim me as a performer, yet bitterly condemn my personal way of living. My name twinkled in bright lights of storied streets of great cities. I have been featured as the star in the swankiest supper clubs in the nation. I have earned the distinction of being the first, and in some cases, the only performer of my race to crash the star dressing rooms of the most plush glitter spots. I have earned the praise of the most cynical critics and have had highly placed men and women respectfully thank me for a brief hour of joy my work has brought into their worried lives. And with that, we are going to take a break, get some tea, and we'll be right back. And now, a word from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Ren's Bookshelf. Do you have questions about the black image in the white mind? Well, Ren's got a book for that. Do you find yourself wondering what traditional Irish folklore sounds like? Well, Ren's got a book for that too. Have questions about wizardology and dragonology? Well, Ren's got the whole series. If you want to make sure that Ren can continue to grow her impressive book collection, you can donate at Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi account. Ren's Bookshelf, where research meets random.
And if you enjoyed that little segment, you might remember me fangirling over (laughs) Dr. Weber a few weeks ago, and that was another clip from him. It's from his song, Less is More, More or Less. I actually chose this song for this week because it has always brought me so much calming energy when I listen to it. I feel like everyone who has lived (laughs) through 2020 can use just like a nice minimalistic song in their life right now. We only played a little snippet of it, of course, but the full version is even more layered. I feel like each time I listen to it, and I'm serious about this, I've heard it about a million times, and yet every single time, I always find a new layer to explore and experience. Dr. Weber actually said something really introspective about it, and I want you all to hear into the mind of the creator really quick, so I'm actually going to read it for you. I wanted to see what would happen if I incorporated elements of strict order versus elements of chance. The repetitive, minimal piano harmonies represent order and structure, rooted in strict rhythm. The glassy piano hanging noises were completely random pitches and arrhythmic. It's a bit of a metaphor for history and world order, the structure of systems and place, but the randomness of world events. What? How cool is that? Isn't that so cool? Yes. And we're so grateful that he has allowed us to use his music in our podcast. And as always, we will link it in the show notes as well as on our social media. So y'all can go ahead and check that out. What are you sipping on today, Lisa? Today I'm having an absurd amount of ginger (laughs) with a dash of Indian black tea and Nalgiri black tea. What are you having over there? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. It's kind of like a mix of a couple different things. I put, I threw in a bunch of herbs. So I've got a ton of ginger because, I mean, ginger is bay. Uh, it also has a little eucalyptus, a little nettle, and also a little echinacea root. So it's kind of like a mix of wellness, if you will. <laughs> Allergy season tis upon us, and I certainly feel it in my bones. <laughs> I guess we'll just jump right into artists this week. Who's your artist, Elisa? I'm super excited about my artist this week. They are a poet by the name of Zandria Phillips, and I just cannot express how much I adore their writing. I get chills every time I read something. That's just how beautiful and complex and emotive their work is. Even the landing page for their poetry on their website says, I write to you from the predicament of blackness. Like, what? And if you're curious, that line is actually from their work called Social Death in a Dress, which you can read if you enjoyed that snippet. They are also an abstract painter and an educator. And their first book, Hull, is available for purchase online. We will definitely be linking their site where you can read, see, and listen to more of their work. Definitely check them out. And just in case you're not quite convinced to check them out yet, I'll leave you with a few lines from their book, Hull, which are featured in a pinned post on their Twitter. Still we know. A tender, consensual process of lovemaking did not birth our galaxy of blackness. Our music, our food, our dance is also a result of our bondage. We are a people from a land unknown to us, labeled black by a catastrophic bang that brought us into being. Goosebumps. Awesome. So, (laughs) who's your artist this week, Rin? My artist this week is Sherlet Emmons. 
I actually found her while researching Gladys Bentley. (laughs) First off, I'm going to be mostly talking about her music career, but you should know that she is a woman of many other talents as well. She's a musician, a poet, and a television producer. And when I tell you this woman is innovative, in 2013, she released an album called Twilight for Gladys Bentley. She has been greatly inspired in her life by Gladys because of how loud and proud Gladys was about her true self against all odds. As a black queer southern woman, Charlotte has faced similar scrutiny that Gladys had faced. Gladys's ability to be unapologetic about her true self has really empowered Charlotte to do the same. You know how Gladys used popular songs of her time and would change the words to be more queer-friendly and make a statement? Well, Charlotte does something very similar. She took all the popular elements of modern music and wrote some straight-up bars that make, quote, parallel statement to Gladys Bentley's. And essentially, that statement is, gender roles are dumb and you can't make me follow them. How cool is that? There's actually a quote from Charlotte from a PBS special called Gladys Bentley, Gender-Bending Performer and Musician, from their un- Lady Lake 2020 series, which we will be linking in our show notes if you want to check it out. But here's what she had to say about the music industry today. This is a white boys game still. When you're making music that represents a marginalized history and the gatekeepers don't look like you, that's something that a lot of musicians and artists who are black are queer are constantly battling. The song that I am recommending today for you is from her album, Twilight, for Gladys Bentley, and it's called Gut Lightning. Oh my gosh, Elisa. Yes? Tell them about our activist this week, please. Our activist this week is Alexander Taman. He is an artist based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who is making waves in that community. In an article from the Black Wall Street Times, he's quoted saying, Art is meant to evoke necessary conversations. We're supposed to use our platforms to invoke positive social change in the world, which is something you can absolutely see in his art. He creates mixed media works primarily with acrylics and has murals throughout Tulsa. He has spoken out about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is to say that when you are thrown into new and unfamiliar situations in life, or you have the opportunity to do something new that will bring you some form of success to adapt to that situation, and to become more comfortable stepping out of your comfort zone, which, yes, a lot of opportunities for myself and I'm sure a lot of other people are things I was hesitant to do because of the initial discomfort, but were 100% worth doing. He's also vocal about Black Lives Matter and police reform, especially after the unjust police shootings that took place in Tulsa. He is just all around a great guy, great activist, and amazing artist. Definitely keep an eye out for him and his art if you're ever in Tulsa. Also, a special thanks to his sister, who goes by the notorious Z-O-E on Twitter for putting him on our radar. We are so glad she reached out to us and that we were able to feature Alexander as our activist this week. He is truly the hero that Tulsa needs and deserves. (laughs) So, Ren, please fill us in on what happened in the news this week. Me? Yes. Right now? Yes, right now. All right. I I guess. (laughs) For news this week, we are going to go over something that literally just happened a few hours ago, at least for us, while recording. One out of three of the officers who are responsible for the murder of Breonna Taylor has been charged with three counts of wanton endangerment, and it was a charge that pertained not to the shooting of Breonna, but rather opened fire in her apartment building. 
This was the officer by the name of Brett Hankison. Now, first off, he wasn't charged with murder, and the chances are very low that he ever would, as Kentucky has self-defense laws that almost completely rule out the possibility of a murder charge. And so that's pretty infuriating to say the least, but what's more so is that the other two, Jonathan Mattingly and Miles Cosgrove, have not faced any charge whatsoever. In fact, they're both on paid leave and have not even gotten fired. Clearly, Breonna Taylor has yet to receive any type of real justice for what happened to her. This injustice almost hits even harder in the wake of the loss of our warrior RBG. The long-lasting changes that she's helped achieve are countless for both women and other marginalized groups. This country is aching for real justice right now, and we just lost one of the few in power who was truly for the people. We're aching for change, and we need leaders who will help us get that. We certainly can't count on someone as unfit as our sitting president to help us with that. Not only has he just extended his ban on sex and race-based ideology to a government setting, which, by the way, makes it so his employees do not have to undergo any race and gender sensitivity training, but he has also endorsed what he is calling patriotic history in school. We have brought patriotic history up before, although we use its more accurate name, which is American exceptionalism. This cycle has just got to end, and we can't can't keep having people like the current president try to cover up and rewrite our history because it's our true history that has led us to the lack of justice for Breonna Taylor and countless others. We can't have someone in charge who does not understand basic concepts of right from wrong. And I'm going to end this by reminding you all to go vote. And when you do, hold RBG's memory in your heart. Let her remarkable life remind you how to fight for justice. Wow. I know. I'm passionate. <laughs> <laughs> For podcast-related news, we do have an exciting announcement for you all. Yes, we have officially launched our Patreon, and Elisa is getting ready to actually read off what the different tiers are. We have three set up, but before we get into that, I guess we kind of really want to talk about why we have a Patreon. If you all haven't noticed... <laughs> We like to have a very high quality podcast and because of that, we put in an insane amount of time in researching and editing and that's just my part. Elisa does a thousand other things that take forever. We try to give you all really high quality content and that's something that we want to keep doing, but it's also something that we want to make into a career. We want to provide more frequent content, more merch, more ways for you all to interact with us and each other, and just build a little community and vanguard for the oncoming revolution, as we say all the time. But because of this, we're going to need your help to build it. And part of what we're asking you all for is financial support to do so. But because asking for financial support is actually a pretty big deal, we want to make sure that you all know what exactly you would be buying if you decided to support us. Alongside with supporting creators who provide really good content, there are some other perks that we want to give you all. And that leads us directly to Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it was created as a way for content creators in the modern age to be able to sustainably do this line of work without solely relying on ad revenue. One thing that we discussed before we even started this podcast is that our audience is not for sale. So we don't want to just push things that we don't fully believe in or products that we don't even use on our listeners. And we generally wanted to keep it free of any real ads. So to do that, we figured that having a Patreon would be the best way. So what exactly are our tiers on Patreon? I will read them for you now, but you can definitely read them for yourselves. 
The link is already on our link tree, which is on our social media. And what's really cool is all of our tiers are actually named after different teas that we've mentioned here in Tea Time. We're nerds, okay? (laughs) You all know what you're in for. Come on. (laughs) So the first tier is the Lady Greys. And it's $5 per month. This tier is the most affordable, but it still offers lots of great exclusive content. It includes behind the scenes photos, links, and or sound clips that give a glimpse of our workflow. Access to a private community of fellow patrons to discuss episode topics and racial activism and an exclusive live chat to interact directly with Ren and Elisa during Fan Interaction Sundays. Oh my gosh, (laughs) how exciting. (laughs) And the second tier is our Huangjingui's, which fun fact about Huangjingui, it means golden water turtle, which I think is really cool. This tier is $20 per month. It includes everything from the last tier, as well as early access to our podcast episodes. We will upload it there as soon as the episode is edited fresh off the press. And this tier also includes the ability to request activists and artists to be featured in tea time. And slight caveat there, we will still have to approve those requests to maintain the integrity of that aspect of tea time. So don't worry, all of the artists and activists will still 100% be people that we can endorse in good conscience. And the last tier is our Jasmine Downey Pearls. For the fancy people. (laughs) This tier is $50 a month. And this is our highest tier with the most benefits. It includes everything from the lower tiers, but with even more exclusive content and some additional merch. Each person from this tier will receive exclusive merch in the mail, such as a handwritten thank you card from Rain and Elisa, hand-drawn stickers, a personalized tarot card drawing, a paper crane, etc. These patrons will also be included in our Meet the Vanguard series, where I will draw you in a cartoon style. This series will be posted on our Facebook page as well as our patron-only community. So definitely lots of benefits to this one, and I think it's really cool. It is super cool. (laughs) But yes, so that's what you can find on our Patreon. If you have any questions, be sure to reach out to us. We really hope that you like the benefits that we included on the different tiers. We think that there's something for every level of support. Let us know what else you all would be interested in receiving if we made another tier or anything you might want us to add to a pre-existing one because, you know, this is new, so (laughs) we're still figuring it out. Yes, but... This is where we're going to end the episode because this tea time is getting a little long. All right. And with that, we will talk to you next week. Bye.